Well, all year we're focusing on the gospel according to John in this series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And uh, I've really enjoyed this so far. I've, I've heard from some of you that this has just been a, a good series to work through. Well, we're not even at the halfway point here, friends. So we're going to continue this morning in John chapter 7. Uh, if you'd like to start getting there on your Bibles or Bible apps, that would be great. But today in John 7, we're going to consider the teaching ministry of Jesus. And Jesus did a lot of things in his ministry. He did, we've seen him do miraculous signs of healing or of provision or power. Uh, we've seen him make incredible uh, claims and maybe reveal incredible truths through his conversations just with individual people. But, but kind of the first and, and the most regular aspect to the ministry of Jesus during his public time on earth is his teaching. Jesus was simply a brilliant teacher. People were constantly amazed by his teaching. It had this surprising authority to it. It was as if he had the authority of God himself. Even though, as we saw last week, it was sometimes hard to understand or even offensive for some. Well, how many teachers are there in human history who've had people trying to listen to them and learn from them 2,000 years after their time of teaching? Jesus is really unique. But here's what separates, I believe, the fans of Jesus from the true followers of Jesus. The follower or the disciple of Jesus seeks to learn from Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher. Learn what? Well, learn about him, of who he is, to learn about what it looks like to follow him to learn his way. And this, this is a, a commitment that goes beyond our circumstances in life. Whether it's going well or not. Whether things are easy or whether things are hard in life. A fan will only stick around provided that there's some benefit for them. But a true follower, a true disciple will stick with Jesus even when the teaching of Jesus corrects or rebukes our opinions, our preferences, or our path. For as Peter said last week, Lord, where else would we go? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. So now, if you have a, a Bible or your Bible app, please go to John chapter 7, starting with verse 1. John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around Galilee... He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one, wants to, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Okay, let's pause here. What's happening? Well, so it was sometime after this famous or maybe infamous sermon that Jesus delivered in the city of Capernaum, where Jesus told people that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and so many, probably thousands of people who had been following him up until this point misunderstood this and were offended by this and decided to walk away from Jesus. It was a hard teaching. 
Now, I would imagine that it would have been tempting for Jesus to become discouraged at this point. To be honest, I would have been. John points out that if, if he knew, John points out that Jesus knew that if he went to the southern region of Judea, where the city of Jerusalem is, then the Jewish leaders there uh, would try and kill him. So here, and in contrast, in the northern region of Galilee, Jesus had just experienced this mass rejection, an abandonment of perhaps thousands of people. And so this is the context here for this this scene. So when Jesus' brothers, or actually his half-brothers, really, same mother, different father, when they urge him to go to Judea to attend the Festival of Tabernacles and go public with his ministry, Jesus has a tough choice. Now try to put yourself in his shoes here. Do I stay in a place where I was largely rejected, or do I go to a place where people want me dead? Well, John also adds this note that even his own brothers did not believe in him. So clearly, they don't understand what Jesus is doing or how he would accomplish his mission. And I, I don't think that that means that they're total idiots because this is before the cross and the resurrection. It was before they would see how Jesus would fulfill and accomplish his mission. Uh, and later, to be fair to, to these brothers, later after the resurrection, they would come to believe in him including his brother James, who wrote the letter of James in the Bible and served as a leader of the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, later, he came to believe in his brother, Jesus, that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. But not yet here. Now, I'm sure this must have been another potential source of discouragement for Jesus. Many, perhaps thousands of people, had just abandoned him, stopped following. His brothers, his family, they don't understand what he's doing or how he needs to accomplish this mission. If he goes to the festival, there are going to be people that will try and kill him. What will he do? Let's continue with verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So Jesus, his response to his brother's urging is that he would not follow their timeline. Jesus would not follow their timeline for his ministry. Jesus never allows anyone other than his Father in heaven to dictate who he was or what he was about, including the timing of his ministry. 
So later, and I believe this is completely according to God's wisdom and God's timing, Jesus went up to Jerusalem where it seemed that all the people at the festival were talking about him. John says there was widespread whispering about him. So last week I said, remember, if at Capernaum, if Jesus had a PR quit, uh, PR team, they all would have quit. After the eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood, no thanks. How are we going to represent this guy to the masses? Well, here at the festival, they might have been tempted to sign back onto the team with this level of buzz. Jerusalem was packed with people for the festival, and everyone was talking about Jesus. But we see the division in this crowd. Some of the people thought that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, sent by God, while others thought he was a deceiver. Now, deceiver is one of the names or titles or descriptions of our adversary, the devil. But everyone knew what the religious and the political leaders thought about Jesus, and so there was tremendous social pressure not to take a public stance on the matter. Doesn't that kind of sound like our current culture today? Some people believe in Jesus, other people reject him, but everyone's kind of fine unless you make like a public stance or a public statement about Jesus. But again, Jesus isn't intimidated by any of this. Look at verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Okay, let's pause one more time before we finish this passage. So instead of being intimidated by all the attention and all the opposition, when the set time had fully come, to quote somewhere in the good book, Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple, says the prophet. But what does Jesus do there? Does he do what his brothers suggest and perform some kind of great miracle and maybe hopefully win back some of the followers he lost in Capernaum? Well, the answer is no. Jesus has come to be the rabbi and be the teacher of Israel and to teach his people and see how the people respond to his teaching. They were amazed. It was incredible. In our passage next week, in a funny passage to me, the leadership in Jerusalem sent temple guards to arrest Jesus, and the guards were so stunned by his teaching, they forgot to arrest him. <laughs> they come back, and they're like, "Why? where's Jesus? They're like, "This is." listen to their response. No one ever spoke the way this man does. In fact, the people were confused as to how Jesus could be such a good teacher when he didn't have any formal training. 
So unlike the Apostle Paul, who was a little younger than Jesus at this time, Paul was trained by one of the most famous rabbis of the day, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a man everyone respected and honored, a man named Gamaliel. Paul had the best education, but Jesus wasn't trained this way. Jesus didn't have a famous rabbi that he followed. He wasn't formally trained to be a Pharisee or a scribe or a teacher of the law. He wasn't a member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin. Most people probably had heard or knew that Jesus had learned the family business of carpentry up in Nazareth. And, you know, maybe he could have been expected to be an expert at that. But at what point could he have learned to teach from the Hebrew scriptures and, and with such power and authority in his interpretation? How could he have more teaching ability than the so-called experts? Well, Jesus responds by saying, listen, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Now, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you'll know this, he's referring to the Father in heaven. Jesus has been talking at length about being sent from heaven, that he is the bread of life come down from heaven, that he is one who only does what he sees his Father doing. In other words, it was God who is teaching you through me. So what I am teaching you is absolutely true and also results in the glory of God. Now, this is perfectly in line with how Jesus saw all of his life and ministry. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, this is important, don't miss this, the Son can, only, can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Okay, that was a teaching that got him in trouble too. Later in chapter 12, Jesus will say, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. If Jesus is telling the truth, as we believe that he is, then when Jesus speaks, it is God himself who is teaching us. And anyone who chooses to do the will of God, Jesus says, will see whether or not what I'm telling you is true. But Jesus knows people, and he knows that there are some listening who have not only, in the hardness of their hearts, rejected him and anything he's about to say, but are actively looking for ways to silence him and kill him. Jesus is a threat to those people because he is testifying to the evil of the world. And so, the teaching of Jesus is both encouraging and empowering freeing us from the weight of sin and death, training us in the way of righteousness and peace. But also his teaching can offer correction or even a rebuke if you're going the wrong way. It was C.S. Lewis who said that continuing to make progress down the wrong path is not progress. Truly making progress would mean to turn around and go back the other direction. So sometimes we need a rebuke. Well, we finish this passage with a correction of Jesus, but also an opportunity to come back to the right path. Let's finish this passage with verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? 
You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it came... It did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. This is God's word. (laughs) Kind of... Didn't come in on a soft landing there, Jesus, but that's okay. Okay, so Jesus says, he says, I like this phrase, the quiet part out loud. Is that right? Can someone under 20, okay, I'm getting thumbs up in the back. They said the quiet part out loud. And, and it, because he exposes the hypocrisy of those who are trying to kill him. You don't perfectly keep the law, so why are you trying to kill me for, according to you, disobeying the law? breaking the law. And the crowd doesn't fully understand what's going on here because Jesus, I think, is mostly directing this statement at the Jewish leadership in the temple. Um, They're like, who's trying to kill you? What? Are you crazy? Are you nuts? Are you demon-possessed? Now, perhaps they've been, the people in the crowd have been intimidated by the Jewish leaders but haven't fully realized the extent of their plans to get rid of Jesus once and for all. At any rate, Jesus alludes to the miracle that he performed at Bethesda and and healing this man who couldn't walk. Now, the problem with that miracle was not that Jesus healed the guy, of course, but that he did so on the Sabbath. Now, what's wrong with that? If you were with us, you'll remember that the Sabbath day in their time went from Friday evening to Saturday evening and was supposed to be a full 24-hour period to cease. That's what Sabbath means. Stop working. And do what? Worship the Lord. Rest. Enjoy all the blessings of God and, and, and honor God in response to what he has done. So Jesus' work of healing and restoring this man at Bethesda back to health, back to purpose, back to community. Uh, and even the fact that the man was carrying the mat that he had laid on, lame, for so many years... These things were seen as work and therefore were violations of the Sabbath command. Now Jesus argues that the understanding of this whole situation and the Sabbath is completely upside down and backwards. They're using the Sabbath as a means to show off their own self-righteousness as a religious box to check. But they don't even practice it consistently or in a way that reflects God's heart behind the law. Jesus says, listen, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath because at that time you were supposed to circumcise a newborn baby on the eighth day after they were born. So if that was a Sabbath day, you had to go through with the circumcision. So Jesus is saying, why are you angry at me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? You guys, it makes no sense. But their narrow understanding of the law resulted in a lack of love toward a man who was lame and needed to be healed. A lack of compassion, a lack of understanding that surely this would be an exception, an acceptable exception to the Lord on the Sabbath day. And it prevented them from giving glory to God for healing this man. Now, of course, this wasn't the only thing that Jesus had 
done or said that had made people upset. We're starting to make a list here in John's Gospel. We already mentioned the Capernaum sermon about eating the bread of life, his flesh and blood. And earlier, Jesus had clearly taught that God was his, his own father, which they, the people rightly perceived uh, to be Jesus making himself equal to God. But to all this, Jesus offers this correction. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, I believe that this refers to his earlier statement that those who seek to do the will of God will judge what Jesus is saying, hard as it might be to understand or even to believe, as actually true. But this is always the challenge with Jesus. As we saw last week, there are some seriously hard sayings of Jesus and hard teachings in the Bible. Teachings that might make us question our own view of God and the goodness of God and the truth of God's word. But this was just as true for the crowd in Jerusalem that day. And it was just as true throughout the Roman Empire under the time of the early church and the Apostle Paul as it is for us today. But listening to and learning obedience to the teachings of Jesus, our great teacher, our great rabbi, is one of the core commitments of a follower of Jesus, both then and now. Jesus will later say in John's Gospel, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Or even later, after the resurrection, when Jesus sends out his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission passage, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So how can we, as followers of Jesus, do this work? How can we learn from Jesus as like our teacher, our rabbi, today? Well, I'm going to leave you with two thoughts here for the rest of our time on this. The first, the first thing I want to share with you is that our ministry, our work as Christians, as disciple makers, does not end with conversion. Okay, of course, it really matters that people have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond through repentance and faith. It really matters that people come to faith in Jesus and become Christians and, and get baptized as a sign of, of new life and new relationship with God. And we celebrate that, right? But that's not where our work in making disciples ends. That's just the beginning. Becoming a Christian is the starting line, not the finish line. The whole of the Christian life, in other words, the whole race, is about learning to obey the commands, the teachings of Jesus, and then joining this redemptive work of helping other people come to faith and grow in their faith as well. So learning teaching and helping others learn is what the Christian life is all about. That's true for your home. That's true with your kids and your grandkids. That's true among your friend group. That's true at being salt and light in the community that we have been sent. 
Now, second, maturity as a follower, as a learner of Jesus, comes first from both meditating on God's word and from putting into practice what you learn. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you know in terms of theological information. Maturity comes from knowing and being able to do what God wants you to do. It may seem like an obvious statement, but it is not at all obvious. Most of us know way more than what we actually do with our faith. The Apostle Paul wrote on the importance of this in 2 Timothy. We already read it earlier this morning, but he writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or listen to James, the brother of Jesus, who would later write, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. That's pretty clear, I think. Thank you, James. Now, this concept of, of listening and learning and trying to put into practice the teachings of Jesus, this is not really that complicated. But as people, the people in Capernaum, or the people in Jerusalem that day found out, it's certainly not always easy. Sometimes the teaching of Jesus is, as we've seen, hard to understand. It takes time. It takes careful thought. It takes checking in with other people. It takes prayer. Sometimes it takes years to come around and fully more deeply understand what Jesus is teaching in a particular area. Now, other times, the teaching of Jesus isn't just hard to understand. It may be very clear to understand, but it goes against our will or our way. Sometimes we need a correction or even a rebuke. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, you know, if he is the eternal son sent from heaven, then he is the only one who has ever seen the Father, and therefore he is the only one who can reveal to us the true nature of reality and the intention of our creator for us as his creatures. And so we must listen to him. We must learn from Jesus and seek to put into practice all that he has taught, all that he has commanded in our actual lives. And his teaching must have authority over our will and our way. Our lives are shaped and conformed into the likeness of Christ through the truth of his word and the power of his spirit. We do not conform God's word to our preferences and opinions. He is our rabbi and master and teacher, and we are the disciples, the learners, the followers. But I want to close by just reminding you of this. Remember who it is that we are learning from. Remember who is Jesus. Listen to his call. The call of Jesus, our great teacher from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the teaching of Jesus can be challenging, but it can be so encouraging. It can offer a direct opposition to our will and our way, but it is so good. And as Peter said, so wisely, maybe wiser than he even knew at the time, Lord, where else would we go? Only you and your teaching, only you and your way offer us words that lead to eternal life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord Jesus, as the living embodiment of the Word of God, the Word of God made flesh, we thank you for your teaching ministry. We thank you, Lord, even today, that we can listen to you, and we can learn from you, and we can learn what it looks like to follow your way in this life. Lord Jesus, I pray that just as you promised you would pour out your spirit, I pray that you would fill us once again with your spirit so that we might be able to see you and see your way and understand your word and we might apply it faithfully even in when circumstances are difficult to our lives. And God, I pray that as you have promised, I pray that we would be able to trust you, that you will finish the work that you've started to do because you are good and you are faithful and your word is alive and active and will accomplish what you have sent it forth to do. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.